During the month of December, as we prepare for a new season of the Christian Atheist Podcast, we're presenting again some of the best of our early episodes for those who have more recently begun to listen. We would also point you to our Simple Gifts Podcast Christmas Programming. Listen to the full text of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol and some other Christmas favorites. We want to express our deepest gratitude to our faithful listeners, those who have stuck with us through all the complexity of thought and presentation in the past two years. Our commitment moving forward is a more down-to-earth and easier-to-understand presentation and content. Jenny and I wish you the merriest of Advent seasons in celebration of the birth of our Lord, and together with you aim at a new year in His service. Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number nine, Afterthoughts, The Escape Back to Reason. Last week, we completed a seven-week series entitled The Machinery of the Looking Glass, an attempt to trace my faith journey from atheism back to Christ. In such an account, much must be shaved off, passed over, and ignored in order to tell the story within the given constraints. This week, I would like to address some of those shavings that deserve attention. First, though, one personal wrap-up. Since passing through the looking glass in 2019, old lives and patterns have burnt to the ground. From those phoenix ashes arose new life, new patterns. It is difficult to express how total a transformation was wrought, and how good God has been to us. Leaving our past, we live and focus forward. We regret any pain to others in the wake of this process, and pray God's blessing on each and every one who felt its sting. I hope it is clear from all that I have said so far that I find both atheism and theism rational responses to our world and experience. On what basis, then, did I choose to step back through the looking glass to belief in God if it wasn't compelled by rationality? Well, perhaps it was, though this will require some explanation, as I do not mean that rational argument, as in arguments for God's existence, convinced me again to believe. In standing in the wood between the worlds that is agnosticism, how did I decide between two rationally competing visions, atheism and theism? There is only one answer to this question for me, value. In value theory, there are traditionally two subdivisions, aesthetics, dealing with order and structure, that is, beauty, and ethics or moral value. We have seen in the course of this series how important maintaining a robust sense of ethics has been in my journey. Socrates, Kant, Sartre, all taking great pains to find space for ethics, moral value, in the face of rational schemes that threaten its viability. As we inhabit, at the ontological level, an ethical world, a robust sense of ethics is not something I have ever been willing to give up on either side of the looking glass. Standing before the looking glass in the wood between the worlds of agnosticism, the choice between theism and atheism centralized aesthetic value for me. Life's value lies in meaning. Meaning keeps the world from disintegrating, makes suffering bearable, gives motivation for doing that which is difficult and painful in the service of the good. 
I've become more and more convinced as I've taught philosophy through the years that rationality is best understood as a broad category encompassing everything that distinguishes humans from other animals. Not just language, logic, and mental reasoning, but also the aesthetic and moral senses. To say that we are rational beings means more, much more, than mere intellect. In this sense, rationality is the imago dei, that spark of the divine upon which our special status stands. Meaning and beauty are allies. We human beings are storytellers. We innately seek sense, understanding, value, and are drawn to meaning and beauty. Animals are not. Beauty, like right and wrong, is both constructed and discovered, both subjective and objective, both for itself and in itself, both, perhaps after last week you can say it with me, human and divine. One of my biggest complaints about the evangelical wing of Christendom is their narrowness on this point. All truth is God's truth. All beauty is of God. Johann Sebastian Bach understood this, as did Martin Luther. The creative impulse of human beings may be corrupted, but the works of man are also inspired by that spark of the divine that inhabits every member of the human race. And God's beauty is revealed in the works of man everywhere. Effectively, there is no divide between the sacred and the secular, only between the good and the bad, the right and the wrong. The story of redemption in Christ is of surpassing beauty. And I find the Bible narrative so utterly grounded in human experience and psychological insight that I am compelled, and I can now say rationally compelled, by its narrative unity and complexity, its deceptive simplicity, its wisdom, its beauty, to accept its truth. The Incarnation, the Divine Word, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world is the pebble from which the concentric rings of existence derive. Standing there in the wood between the worlds of agnosticism in July of 2019, I compared the competing narratives of atheism and theism. There is beauty, truth, and morality for most atheists. To say otherwise would be foolish, and ignore the reality that these men and women present to the world. Atheists are quite often compelled by ethical considerations. It is a central focus for Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, for example. Value is not absent for or from atheists. They are, after all, human beings, possessing that same spark common to us all. As an atheist, though, my hard-headed rationality kept seeking truth through the process of demystification, remember? The purpose of knowledge was to take the measure of being, to nail it down. My metaphysical commitments required me to pair my experience of whatever did not fit the metaphysics. I am not trying to speak for all atheists here, only myself, though I suspect that this is common to atheistic worldviews. The supernatural, the unknown, the mysterious, the paradoxical and ambiguous I treated as the enemies of truth. 
And if the world is less beautiful, less compelling, less meaningful without them, then so be it. It is a price worth paying. I would argue that at its foundation, atheism is the stance that reality is not good. Good itself being a merely human psychological accident. That nihilism and pessimism, absent a true leap of blind faith, are the most true of responses one can make to the universe from a consistent and logical atheism. Few atheists, though, follow the logic of this position to its conclusion. I certainly never did. I might suggest, though, that whereas Judeo-Christian theism struggles with the aporia of evil's existence in a good God's world, the problem of evil, atheism has the analogous problem of good in a meaningless cosmos. To the extent that they embrace good as anything other than epiphenomenon, I suggest that they also embrace God. This is the Tao of God's universe, and it was my escape back to reason through the looking glass that day in the wood between the worlds of agnosticism. For me, the dichotomy of truth versus beauty was falsified. Truth is too large and complex to be put into a box by such a limited being as man. Why should it be the case that in holding to truth, I had to give up any modicum of beauty? In fact, I feel quite justified in thinking that beauty is the greatest ally of truth, as my experience teaches me that those works of art, music, paintings, poems, stories, that appear most true were also most beautiful. Explicitly, then, that day in July, I chose the more beautiful of the competing visions as my choice. Jenny, joy, and truth. God's life, His beauty, His way. I decided to believe the universe good, in spite of appearances to the contrary. Perhaps this is the essence of faith in the Western God, in His Redeemer. My choice is reflected in Puddleglum's words to the Queen of the Underworld in the silver chair. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst, and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed, or made up all those things. Trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that, in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. One might attack me on this point that, as Puddleglum says, I am abandoning truth in favor of a play world because it is more appealing. In this way, I am open to the accusation of empirical idealism, 
of choosing a rational construction created whole cloth from the human mind. This, I've claimed repeatedly, is the ever-present danger into which human rationality falls, and it is dangerous and wrong to do so. What must be kept in mind in this example is that there are two competing explanations of our experience presented as metaphysically real, one of which severely limits the realm of experience. Choosing between them is a matter of faith, not knowledge. Puddleglum had lived in Narnia his whole life, as had his family and generations before them. He had experienced Narnia, the trees, grass, sun, and stars. He was now in the underworld, a reality separated from his previous experience, and he has offered a metaphysical explanation of that experience based on the more limited realm he now inhabited. Unsurprisingly, based on the new experience, new knowledge, he doubts the old on the basis of the new as a metaphysical limiting screen. Sometimes, reality itself, when mixed with metaphysical assumptions, can limit our experience, cutting us off from realities beyond experience, like the atomic structure of material reality. Human experience of empirical reality is common to both conceptions, but only one allows for a nearly infinite richness, complexity, and beauty, while the other explains it away, treats it as unreal. Like Puddleglum, I ally myself with reason and experience. I choose beauty and meaning as components of the real, and I reject any metaphysics that explains them away. Until I find good reason to abandon meaning, I choose to act as if it is real. My rational devotion to beauty, to truth, to Christ, compels my allegiance. It is a metaphysics that allows for transcendence, which cannot be proven. What it denies is another metaphysics, also unproven, one that denies the transcendent. The beauty and majesty of God's story is incomparable to the bleak meaninglessness of the alternative, to a world without transcendence. Beauty merges with truth, meaning, and life in Christ in a way that engages the grit, hardship, and tragedy of human existence without falsifying it. A belief in Narnia does not falsify the reality of the underworld. Sometimes we are called on to deny reality, deny our experience in light of metaphysical explanations. Sometimes we are right to do so. But we should not neglect to understand that in doing so, we are choosing faith over experience, faith in a metaphysical explanation. The sun does not set. The distant stars are suns, and our sun is a star. While scientists have good reason for believing this, most of the rest of us simply accept it on faith with good evidence. But even scientists exercise faith in combination with reason to answer such questions as the age of the universe, its extent in space. Such speculation gives us good reason to accept the answers we give and allows us to move beyond our experience. Likewise, faith in God moves us beyond our experience, but it also does a better job of accounting for the real, historical human experience 
than does atheism. Just as the heliocentric view of the solar system better accounts for what we think of as the setting sun. As C.S. Lewis concludes in his essay, Is Theology Poetry? The waking world is judged more real because it can contain the dreaming world. The dreaming world is judged less real because it cannot contain the waking one. For the same reason, I am certain that in passing from the scientific points of view to the theological, I have passed from dream to waking. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.